Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson's talk, The Federal Family, from our audio collection titled, The Covenant Household. Job, the first chapter. Job chapter 1. I'd like to read just the first five verses. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. Now his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Let's pray together. Father, we know that only the pure in heart will see you, and this means that only the pure in heart can understand your word. We therefore open our Bibles in Jesus' name, asking you to teach and instruct us. Apart from your spirit, no sinner can come to understand the purity of your law, which is a constant reflection of the holiness of your character. We pray for his presence with us now as we turn these pages. Please turn our lives. We are considering the nature of the household and the family here. Please open our eyes to what we've neglected and lost in this realm and recover those things for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've already considered and seen in Scripture that marriage is a covenant entity, and obviously this is no less true of the fruit of that union. That which is born of the covenant is also uh, covenantal, just as the Lord Jesus says, uh, flesh gives birth to flesh, the Spirit gives birth to uh, spirit. We can see it as a law in Scripture that like begets like. So the, the children of a covenant union are obviously covenant children, and we see that not only is marriage a covenantal entity, but the family, the household, the, uh, the, uh, the family that grows out of that union is also a covenantal entity. Now, before we turn to consider the text this morning, I want to uh, mention a few things by way of background. Uh, it is a commonplace among us, I think, that God has established three governmental entities among men, the family, the church, and the civil realm. And I believe that most of us understand that, but I think that there's a common misunderstanding that goes, a misunderstanding which goes with that as well. We tend to say that there, there are these three covenantal entities, family, church, and, and state, or the civil realm, and then we put them all on a shelf or all on a line together as though you've got family government, then over here you have church government, then over here you have civil government. It's more like an, uh, an inverted triangle because there's no civil realm that is not constituted or made up of households, families. And there is no church that is not constituted or made up of families or households. So you have to see that the fundamental governmental institution that God has established is that of marriage and the family. And as households are established under God and they gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, a church is constituted and may form a larger uh, government And as people gather in towns or counties or different areas according to their languages or or ethnic background or common 
common goals, whatever it is that brings them together in a civil society, we see that every civil society is also made up of all these covenanted households. The basic unit of any society is, is the household, and the basic unit of the church is also the household. Consequently, I hope you can see that when, th when our theology of the household goes wrong, when we have a misunderstanding of what a covenant is in the household, then necessarily we're going to have a skewed understanding of it in the civil realm, and we're going to have a skewed understanding of it in the realm of the church. Now, the, the subject today is the federal household, the covenant household, the federal family, and I'm going to be using illustrations from the civil realm and perhaps also from the church realm, not because the, that is the subject, but because that illustrates in a large way what the problem is at, our, uh, at the family level. Now, I want you to see what is going on in this text. Job goes and offers sacrifices according to the number of his children. They had a time of feasting, and it says in verse 5, so it was when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. He would offer burnt offering for each of his children, his seven sons and his three daughters. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed, and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now, I want you to see that Job is not offering sacrifices because of a feeling of guilt or because he's working through a dysfunctional situation and he is trying to, you know, trying to do something before God that will assuage uh, that guilt. Look at verse 1. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. We are, we are told Job's character in the first verse, and then we are given an example of his uprightness. We're, giving an example, we're given an example of his blamelessness, his righteousness, his hatred of evil. That is, he sacrifices, for each, uh, sacrifices uh, something for each of his children. So he's not tr trying to deal with his guilt feelings. He's not working through a problem situation. He is an upright man with an upright household. And he is upright, we can see, because he's assuming responsibility. This practice of his, in verse 5, is being set before us as an example of his righteousness, not as an example of his admission of unrighteousness. This is set before us as an example of righteousness. This man shunned evil. He was blameless. He was upright. And God says that. You know, when, when later in the book, when, when uh, Satan comes before the Lord, the Lord says to Satan, Have you seen Job? Have you checked Job out? Has Job caught your attention? The Lord is not... Uh, embarrassed with Job. The Lord holds Job up. He describes Job here as a righteous man. So Job is not dealing with guilt. In, this, in the offering of these sacrifices, the primary issue is not guilt. The issue is responsibility. And masculine, the, the masculine assumption of responsibility is at the heart of covenant understanding. And if we don't understand that, we don't understand anything about it. Now, I want you to see what, how far Job extends his responsibilities. Notice what he's doing. He's standing before God, offering sacrifices on account of what any, any one of his children might have done in their hearts. He's not talking about um, one of his sons going out on a rampage and then giving excuses to everybody. Well, he's trying to work through his shyness or he's trying to, he's not giving excuses at all. He is assuming responsibility not only for the actions and words of his sons, but he's assuming responsibility for the heart attitudes of his sons. 
And he's assuming responsibility before the Lord, not anywhere else. All right, he's sacrificing before the Lord, and he's saying, one or more of my children might have cursed God, and they might have done so in their hearts. They may have had some attitude of contempt toward God. Now, in our modern individualistic culture, this attitude makes no sense. And this is because individualism sees every individual as a, a, a discrete unit uh, the, on the uh, on the. Uh, outline I used the illustration of a billiard ball. Every individual here is a billiard ball. It's a round ball and that ball can only, that, uh, only one ball can occupy a given space. Alright, so if, if there's one ball here and another ball comes along, it displaces the second ball. You can't have, the, the balls don't blend, they don't overlap. It's either one or the other. And we think, we think of our lives as a, a whole series of individual actions and every action, every choice, every decision is an individual billiard ball and so every ball displaces every other ball. We think in terms of either or instead of both and. This is very important to get. Parental responsibility and the responsibility of the child to serve God do not displace one another. Now this is the, this is the place where we slip off. We're, as individualists, as pietistic individualists, we, we will say something like this. Well, my son or my daughter is responsible for the choices they make, and that's against God's law what they're doing there, and so they're going to have to answer to God for what they just did, because what they did is against God's law. And we think that because they are responsible, we must not be. Or we lurch over into the opposite extreme, and if we assume responsibility, we think that they must not be. Because we think that on, for any given action, only one person can be responsible. But that's false. That's anti-covenantal. For any given action, more than one person can be responsible in different ways and in different relationships. It, we're not like uh, billiard balls that displace one another. Just to illustrate the point, if two men were to, if two men were to aim a gun at another man simultaneously and they both pulled the trigger simultaneously and the man died, we wouldn't accuse each man of being half a murderer. We wouldn't say that, well, there's one murder and there's two people who committed it, so each person has 50% of the responsibility, and so each one's half a murderer. No, they, they're both 100% murderers. An action, a choice, responsibility is not something that displaces another, um, another's responsibility necessarily. So we tend to think, well, either he is responsible or I'm responsible. Or I'm, if I'm responsible, then he's not. And if he's responsible, then I'm not. Or if we divide the responsibility, we divide it as he's half responsible and I'm half responsible. It's 50-50. Or he's mostly responsible. He's 70% and I'm 30% responsible. But, and so we think that it's a math problem. We think that it must always add up to 100. But it doesn't. There's as much responsibility in these situations as you have people. Five people, it adds up to 500. Two people, it adds up to 200. Three people, it adds up to 300. You've got, you've got uh, responsibilities that, that, that you bring into the situation, and those responsibilities must be embraced. Now, let me, let me illustrate this from the civil realm. We, have, um, we live in an individualistic culture and society, and this is why our culture at large, this is why the culture is cracking up. This is why we live in a multicultural society, is because all the, uh, all the tensions, all the disputes, all the grievances that we have with one another have no glue, there's no covenantal glue 
to tie us together anymore. And this is because we are individualistic in our households. All right? The problem is not that the scoundrels in Washington have decided to do bad things to an innocent and pure people. All right? That's not the problem. The problem is that an anti-covenantal people have been living in an anti-covenantal way in their households for 200 years, and that has finally caught up with us in the civil realm. And we've been living in an anti-covenantal way in our churches, and that's finally caught up with us in the, in the desperate condition of the church today. The church is just a, we are a fragmented array of sects and, and cults and denominations, and this is all because of our, anti, uh, our hostility to covenantal thinking, to federal thinking in the household. It's the same in the civil realm. Let me illustrate this. It may be funny and may be expressed in funny ways at different times, but you've probably seen the bumper sticker that says, don't blame me, I voted for the other guy. Right? Don't blame me, I voted for the other guy. As though a difference of opinion separates me out or gets me out of this situation. There is, I, I regardless of who I voted for, I am represented by those who are in uh, authority. I'm represented by those who are in power. And I can't say, well, um, he is someone that I'm opposed to, and so uh, President Clinton doesn't represent me in any way, shape, or form. Well, that's, not, that's false. He represents me in the civil realm as much as he represents his most ardent supporter. He represents me. He represents my household. He represents your household. Now, this is appalling to Christians because Christians don't want to be represented that way, and they want the, but they don't want refuge or deliverance from the situation by the deliverance of God. They want deliverance from the situation by opting out of the system, by saying, don't blame me, I don't like him. I, I can somehow move myself away from him. Let me give you another indication of this. There was a time, for example, when you'd be reading a newspaper uh, report about some foreign policy action, something was done overseas, and the newspaper would, report would start with something like this. The United States announced today that right? the United States today took this action. Today, that same newspaper report will say the administration announced today. Right? That's a part of our factionalism. The, the administration's over there. They do what they do. We're over here. We do what we do. Sometimes we agree with what they do and sometimes we don't, but it's always distinct. They are over there and we are over here. Well, let's think about this for a minute. The administration announced today. The administration of what? The administration of the White House? No. The administration of the United States. Right? The United States is taking this action through her covenant representatives. The, now, you might say, well, th that, would be, that would be bad because these people are wicked. I, I grant it. These people are wicked. These people don't acknowledge God's law. I grant it. They don't acknowledge God's law. These people are awful. I grant it. They're awful. So how can you say that they represent us? Because we are the same. We have the same problems. They represent us for a reason. God does not assign covenant representatives willy-nilly. He doesn't... He doesn't um, we sometimes confuse God's sovereignty. We think that God's sovereignty is arbitrary or ca capriciously applied. God always does what he does for a good reason. It's not a good reason according to us, but he always does what he does according to his character and nature, which is holy, righteous, and good. And if he appoints us scoundrels for civil representatives... And he has. And if he appoints for us scoundrels who are the spokesmen for evangelical Christianity on the national stage today, and he has, right? if he has done this, 
He has done this because we are grossly lacking in our understanding of what a covenant is. And where do we not have this? Where is this lack of understanding exhibited? It's exhibited in each of our households. Until we have a reformation of federal thinking in households across the country, we will have no reformation at the national level in the church, and we're going to have no reformation in the civil realm either. Covenants are historical and hierarchical. Thus, a father can have responsibility for his sons and his daughters, and each son and daughter is responsible for himself. A father may be responsible for his daughter, and then when a, a, a young man comes and courts her and, and marries her, he is now responsible for her. Does this diminish the father's responsibility? It does not. These things increase and ascend. They multiply and ascend. They don't, they're not subtracted and divided. Now, there are areas of primary covenantal responsibility. When a young man marries a woman, he is the primary, uh, he is the, he is the primary head of this young woman. But that doesn't mean that the father can say, well, I've washed my hands of it, and I now assume no responsibility for anything that happens from here on out. No, the husband is responsible, but if things go seriously wrong, for example, uh, let's say a man brings a daughter up, and then she marries, and then 10 years into her marriage, she denies the faith. All right, her husband uh, doesn't lead her and doesn't teach her and, uh, the way he ought to, and she denies the faith, and she falls into gross sin. Now, who's responsible? She is, her husband is, and her father is. Right? You cannot say, well, the father can't say, well, I'm glad that didn't happen on my watch. Right? Obviously, how he exercised his responsibility when he was bringing her up had an impact on what she's doing now. And obviously, how her husband has treated her and how she has thought and how she has pursued her walk with the Lord, all these things have an effect on it. And nobody can say, because someone else is responsible, I am less responsible. If you think that because someone else is responsible for how you're doing, that somehow diminishes your responsibility, you don't understand it. Right? The more responsibility someone else has, the more responsibility you have. Right? Do you see that? If I'm, if I'm saying to the parents, as, a, as I am saying, that you're responsible for the spiritual condition of your children, those of you who are children who are listening to this, you don't get to say, oh, my parents are responsible for how I'm doing, I'm therefore not responsible. No, this increases your, your sense of responsibility, doesn't it? If you realize that if you get into sin, your parents are in trouble with God, when you realize that that's what this means, does that increase or decrease your responsibility to walk with God? It increases it. You, you have a greater sense of personal responsibility because you have a greater sense of corporate responsibility. Um, we have to take care that we don't lurch into the direction of individualism, which says, Personal responsibilities cannot overlap, and because the individual is responsible, then, then that's the way it is, and he's the only one that's responsible. Or we can't, say our, we can't grant the same premise and say individual responsibilities cannot overlap, and so since the father's the head of the home, I'm going to opt for some sort of patriarchal society where the father's responsible for everything, and those under him are responsible for nothing. Both, both of those options are a ditch on either side of the road. Stay away from both of them. Every biblical assertion of responsibility does not diminish true individual responsibility. Now, as we think about this, we have, to, we have to preserve certain key principles. The first is that the assumption of covenant responsibility does not diminish personal responsibility, as I've just been arguing. 
Every child is responsible for what he does and thinks and says. And every child who grows up in a covenant household, every child who leaves to go out into the world to make his way in the world is responsible for what they do, say, and think. The assumption of the parents' responsibility together and then the final assumption of responsibility by the, the head of the family, the, the father, this assumption does not diminish the child's responsibility. It increases that responsibility. Secondly, and this is very important, this teaching is not condemnation, it is liberation. You know exactly what you're supposed to do. There's no mystery here. There's no fog here. You know exactly what you need to do. Now, if you've got some snake pit in your, in your family, if you've got some big tangle and, and everything is bad, and you say, well, I... What kind of counsel do I need to get? What, what books do I need to buy? What seminars do I need to go to? What, uh, how much do I have to pray? And you start getting on this little squirrel cage run of sanctification, and you're spinning your wheels, and you're working very, very hard. It's a lot simpler than that. Stop and assume responsibility. Just, just stop and assume responsibility for what is occurring. This thing is hard to do, but it's not difficult to understand. It's hard to do because it involves swallowing pride. But that's the only thing that's hard about it. Right? It's, not, it's not complex. It's, it's not a, a difficult math problem. It's not something that's beyond you. What you need to understand is say, this is just straight up. This is what it is. Are you the father? Yeah, I'm the father. Are these your children? Yeah, they're my children. Well, then you're responsible. That's all you need to understand. Right? Are you the father? Yeah, I'm the father. Are you in a covenant relationship with him? Yes, I'm in this covenantal relationship with him. Well, then you are responsible. And you say, but I don't know what to do. Well, see, that's the problem, is we're doers. Right? We, we bustle about. We want to do. We want to act. We want to save ourselves. We want to save our children. We want, by our actions, by our manipulations, by our choices, we want to do it. But we cannot do it. Jesus Christ is our Savior, and He is our only Savior. And if He is not, if He doesn't save us, we will not be saved. If He does not deliver us, we will not be delivered. And so, what you have to do is say, "All right, you mean you want me to stand before you and just assume the responsibility?" Yes, that's all. Just stand up before the Lord and do it. It is a very simple thing to do. Now. You say, it's simple, yes, simple to comprehend, but hard to do. And you're going to discover, many of you fathers, you're going to discover there's a very um, a very deep sticking point here. You don't want to be that responsible. You don't want to be that responsible. And so you'll start uh, catching at things and explaining and say, well, I don't want to diminish my son's responsibility. I don't want to diminish my daughter's responsibility. Well, then don't. Trust me, the Bible does not, does not teach that by you assuming additional responsibility, it diminishes their responsibility. It will not. It will have precisely the opposite effect. The more a father assumes responsibility for the state of his household, the more responsible the individuals in that household become. The less he assumes responsibility, the less those in his household assume responsibility. Why? Because they're imitating him. He's teaching them. He's preaching to them. He's, he says, he, he says, kids, this is a way of life. I want you to model me in this. Don't blame me. All right? Don't blame me. Now, how many times does that message come through? Don't blame me. You are the one who did this, young man. You are the person who did that. 
and, and the leadership and the correction and the reproof from the Father is not corrective in a godly way, it's accusative. Another way of saying it, when, when it's accusative, uh, well, it's diabolical. That's the way the devil is. A diabolical accusation says, you did this and you did that and you did the other thing. Finger pointing is diabolical. A father assumes responsibility and does not say you. He says we. All right, that's what a father does. Now, this is not difficult. This is not rocket science. But it is humbling. And that's the problem. That's the sticking point. You, men need to learn humility. And it, it's a very, very difficult thing for men in particular to learn. They need to learn to humble themselves before the Lord and say that my... Uh, I have to stand before you and I have to answer for what these other people are doing and it's very hard for me to do because what they're doing appears to be completely outside of my control and I wish I could make them behave so that I could, that I could fix everything up and come before you and then stand before you proud. But I can't come and stand before you proud. I must come and stand before you humble. Now, there are only two options. You can try to come before him proud, in which case you will never come, or you can stay away from him proud. But that's, those are ungodly options. The only godly thing to do is to come before him humble. This leads us to the next point. This is a point of unity. This kind of thinking unifies families. Accusations divide families. All right. The assumption of responsibility unifies families. It draws them together. Accusing divides. Apart from covenantal thinking, adversarial thinking develops necessarily in the family. Apart from covenantal thinking, adversarial thinking develops in the family. You are over there, and I am over here, and we each have our perspective, and my perspective over here is that you over there are being a jerk. Right? And I'm going to point out to you what you're doing, and, and you're, not, you're not doing right here, and you're not doing right there, and you're not, this is wrong, and that's wrong, and it's, it's all accusations, and it's of the devil. Right? The devil is the accuser of the brethren. Now, how many of you are diabolical in your families? Because you accuse. You don't assume responsibility and say, we, you accuse. And that kind of accusation divides. And this is why, um, this is why families explode. This is why people uh, who ought to be close to each other are not on speaking terms. This is, it's our neglect of this that keeps us from being able to say, we. Covenant thinking, apart from covenant thinking, you cannot use the first person plural. You cannot properly say we unless you understand covenant thinking. Because if, apart from covenants, there is no we. Just you and me. That's, that's the only thing we have. Two individuals with their own tastes, their own desires, their own way of doing things, their own perceptions. This sort of assumption of responsibility is the only way we can say in the family, we. Lastly, in this section, I want to point out that Job offered animal sacrifices, a burnt offering, for each one of his children. Now, he offered animal sacrifices because he lived prior to the coming of Christ. And you need to factor this in. You do not, as parents, come before the Lord to offer any kind of blood sacrifice. Right? Because you come before him in Jesus' name, which is another way of saying you come before God on the basis of the sacrifice of the only Son of God, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The basis of your prayer is the sacrifice of Christ that you look back to in faith, just as Job looked forward to the sacrifice of Christ by faith when he sacrificed those animals. All right, so you're, you're both looking at the sacrifice of Christ, but in a different way. 
the, the change of the covenant does not alter the content of the prayer. It alters how you say in Jesus' name. Job said in Jesus' name by sacrificing an animal. You do not say in Jesus' name by sacrificing an animal. You come before him, both of you, though, in Jesus' name. The content of the prayer, the assumption of responsibility, Lord, it may be that one of my children has cursed God, cursed you in their heart. It may be that one of my children is running around lying and deceiving. It may be that one of my children is playing, is being one thing away from home and, and a completely uh, other kind of person within the home. It may be that my sons are sneaking around on me. It may, be, it may be that they're lying and cheating and deceiving. It may be that my children are being hypocrites. But I stand before you responsible. Now, an individualist would say, how can God blame me because I didn't know about this? If I'd known about it, I would have accused and rebuked and grounded. Right? If I'd known, I would have done. But I didn't know, so I can't be responsible. Is this what Job does? Notice that Job admits his ignorance. Job says, it may be, I don't know, it may be, they may not have cursed God in their hearts, but it may be that they have. But whether he knows, whether he saw, whether he heard, whether he had it on good report or not, doesn't change it at all. He's responsible. And as a responsible person, he stands up before God. As a blameless, upright person, he stands up before God and says, this may be. So we plead the sacrifice of Christ as we assume this responsibility. But the content of our prayer should be the same as Job's. This means, fathers, and together with your wives, come before the Lord in prayer and assume responsibility, whether or not you know. Your knowledge has nothing to do with it. This whole thing rides upon your relationship to your children, not your knowledge of your children. It rides upon the, uh, the, the covenant entity that God has established and told us about in his word. And I can guarantee you that when you start assuming responsibility, you're going to start learning far more than you did the other way. You're going to start learning. You're going to, first, you're going to learn a lot about yourself. You're going to learn how proud you are. You're going to start seeing that your children were not so much... Um, sons and daughters created in the image of God to live and rejoice before him eternally as they were a display case for your pride. How, how many parents push their kids into things so that they may make the parents look good? And they, they want the, parent, the kids to showcase everything. And they want, and, and different cultures and different subcultures, different churches value different things. And so the children grow up learning how to model these things and say, okay, well, mom wants me to do this, and so I'll do this, and, and in this situation I'll act that way, whether my heart's in it or not. And, and so we all learn to be pious hypocrites, and we learn to be pious hypocrites because parents do not assume responsibility, they manipulate and, and display. And that's different than godly child-rearing. So assume responsibility, and don't say, I don't know, I, I can't assume responsibility for things I don't know. It goes the other way. Assume responsibility, and you will learn a great deal. Now, the applications of this are many, but there are just a few things that I wanted to mention. The first is that this is a question of having an obedient mind. This is not a technique. There are not five steps or seven steps or 12 steps to do Not a technique. It's an attitude, it's a, it's a demeanor that, that is inculcated in you, if it's inculcated at all, as a fruit of, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will work this in you, and if he works it in you, it's there, and if he doesn't, it isn't, and there's no technique that you can 
come up with that will replace his sovereign, gracious work in your life. This is simply a question of thinking biblically. It's a question of whether or not you have a mind of wisdom, a mind of blamelessness like Job did. Wisdom cannot be canned. It cannot be freeze-dried. Distinguish application. Make sure you distinguish application from just a mindless conformity where you learn to say, because this is the kind of church where you have to say, well, I take full responsibility. You need to understand what taking full responsibility is. Now, you can see this in different uh, places, and I think different cultures um, have uh, have a, an understanding of this, some better than others, and some illuminated by common grace, some by the scriptures. I believe our culture at one time used to have this understanding. Uh, for example, uh, in Shakespeare's play, Henry V, you recall after the, the great battle where the English defeated the French and there's a negotiation between the French uh, and English kings. How does the French king greet Henry. He hails him as Brother England. He doesn't say the most important guy in England. He hails him as England. Right? You, you are England. You embody in your person that nation. You are England. He says, hail Brother England. Our culture used to understand this, but because of the pressures of democratization and individualism that have been rampaging through our culture for the last century or, or two, we have we have lost that understanding. I remember a number of years ago uh, seeing a, a wonderful exhibition of this assumption of responsibility. There was an eastern, there was a, an airline that had crashed and many people were killed. I think it was a Korean airline that had crashed. And then when the, the families of all the, uh, the families of all those who had died on the plane were coming uh, to, to the, I think it was the memorial service, the funeral, they were, they were coming to, uh, gathering together, expressing their grief. I, I remember seeing the footage of these people getting off the airplane and the president of the airline, all right, the president of the airline whose plane had crashed was on the tarmac uh, personally assuming responsibility for every one of the relatives. He was, he was saying, this is our responsibility. He was, he was not some distant corporate executive saying, oh, I wonder how this is going to affect our profits. He was a man standing there assuming full responsibility. Now that kind of thinking is almost absent from our culture and our time uh, today, and we, it is essential that we recover it, but not in the civil realm first, not in the business realm first, not in the area of church government first, but in the family first. But again, it's not a technique. It's just simply saying, God, I want to understand what it is to be a federal father. I want to understand what it is to have our family be a federal family, a family by covenant, in which all the responsibility comes to one point. And, and it gets to that point, and you can say, in all honesty, that the buck stops there. There's nowhere else to go. That's where the responsibility. And, you, and there's no sniveling, there's no whining, there's no excusing. They don't tell me, my boys lie to me, my daughter manipulates, them, all this stuff. If they would only tell me everything, if they were only perfectly pure and true and honest, then I could be a good father. Well, no. The reason they are the way you are is because of the father you have been. And this is why you need to assume responsibility. Secondly, after a decision is made, for example, we all understand what, is, what it's like for a family to say that we are going to go do thus and such. We are going to move or we are going to um, 
change towns or we're going, to, we're going to move from this house to that house. We are doing thus and such. Now this is only possible because we, that, that entity, decided to do thus and such. Now how that decision was reached, whether it was democratically or, everyone, or, or more biblically where everybody gave their input and then the head of the household made the decision, uh, it doesn't matter how uh, that decision is made. When the decision is reached in the covenant head, then that family has made the decision to do that thing. So if I decide, for example, to go somewhere, my feet go too. Right? I decide, and when I decide, my feet are deciding. When I decide, my hands are deciding. Now, this is the organic model that Scripture puts before us. We cannot say that uh, when I decide to pick something up, I don't take a vote. You know, one head, ten fingers. Now, in a democracy, right, what would happen? In a democracy, the ten fingers would say, that might hurt, or I don't want to pick that up, or that might... Uh, that might give me splinters. That might do this. And they would all outvote the head. That's not the way it works. What I decide is what my hands decide. What I decide is what my feet decide. In the same way, what the family decides is what the family does. And there's only peace in the household when everyone understands that this is how it works. Lastly, this is done before the Lord. The best place and I would suggest that, at least initially, the only place to put this into practice is in your prayer life. Notice that Job does not use his covenantal understanding as a, as a new basis for nagging. Okay? Now this is, this is how it would work if you were using it as a foundation for nagging. You would show up at the kid's place and say, Now I hope you guys didn't do anything bad or curse God in your hearts because you all know that that would reflect badly on me before the Lord and I'm, I'm after all responsible. I hope you didn't do that. And so what we do, instead of understanding this as a transaction that's done before the Lord, we try to wrest control. We always try to wrest control of our salvation away from Him and get it into our own hands. All right, all right, we reluctantly admit that we're justified by faith alone and it's not of any works. But at least we can get human works into our sanctification and into the sanctification of our families. And so we try to get it out of his hands and into our own. And so we say things. We wink and we nod and we nudge and we, we can communicate in a thousand different ways to our kids that we disapprove. And we can communicate this disapproval in an accusative way. Now, I, I hope and pray that you communicate um, disapproval of certain actions uh, with far more vigor than with a wink and a nudge, but with a, a clobbering, with a, with a spanking when they're young. But one of the worst things that happens is that we don't discipline our children when they're little. We don't insist on uh, the godly means of training them when they're small. And then when they get bigger and bigger and they start to do real damage out there in the world, we don't try to come at it with biblical discipline, but we become nags. And then this teaching would become a, a great weapon in the arsenal of nagging. Okay. okay? Now, you children, don't do anything because I'm responsible for the... Don't tell your children that you're responsible. Don't hint to them that you're responsible. They, they, they can hear the message. They understand what was being said. But don't you indicate to them at all that you're responsible to them at all because that is manipulative. Go before the Lord, alone with the Lord, alone with the Father, and assume full responsibility there, and that's all. Stop it there. And assume it daily. If there are problems in your household, then make sure that you present those problems assuming full responsibility daily before the Lord. An anti-covenantal, pietistic mindset would work this way. 
You know, I caught my son reading Penthouse. That's not the way our family is. He was taught better than that. And I, I really let him have it. And I rebuked him. And I did this and I did that. A father who, who catches his son using pornography should not be thinking, I am good and he is bad. He needs to understand that we have a problem. That's what the father needs to think that way. Now, of course, the father must say something to his son, and what he says must not be approving. What I'm saying here is it must not be accusative. He must assume responsibility fundamentally before the Lord. That's what the father must do. The, co the covenantal mindset would say something like this. Father, it may be, or if he knows, it is the case that lust has a foothold in our house. It is very clear to me that lust has a foothold in our house, and I am the one responsible. And I come before you pleading the efficacy of this sacrifice. Notice in verse 1, it, while it says that Job is blameless and upright and he feared God and he shunned evil, notice that when Job pleads for his children, he's not pleading his righteousness. He's not pleading Job's righteousness. He's pleading the sacrifices. He's offering up the sacrifices because Job, however righteous and godly he is, is not absolutely righteous. He's a sinner like the rest of us, and no sinner may plead his own righteousness before the Lord. We must plead the sacrifices. And so a father must come before the Lord and say, Father, it appears to me that this sin is, has a stronghold in our family. This sin of carping or criticizing or envy or covetousness or sloppiness, or laziness, or, what, or, or lust, or whatever the problem is that you see and which exasperates you, assume responsibility and say in your prayers, we. Say in your prayers, we. And until you've learned to pray that way habitually in your prayer closet, you are not qualified to correct your children verbally or overtly in the right way. Now, there's... And you say, well, I have to do, things are pretty bad, and I have, to, I have to do something, I have to get to this. Well, then you better learn this lesson then. Right? If time's wasting, if you, don't, if, if you think, well, my, my children are growing up fast, and, and we're, we don't understand the things that we ought to understand, well, I understand that uh, these things can catch up with you pretty quick, and your, your kids can grow pretty quick, and you, can, and you can think, oh, I don't have time. The time I have left with my children are now measured, in, for some of you, are now measured in weeks. They're now measured in days, and your children aren't going to be in your household forever. Some of your children may already be gone from your household, and so you need to learn this way of praying. You need to assume responsibility. Now, please understand me. Assuming the responsibility is not the same as assuming the blame. You're not assuming the blame. Now, sometimes you have to assume blame as well. There's blame and guilt oftentimes that must be assumed by the father and the mother as individuals. You must assume the blame and guilt for your own nagging, your own accusativeness, your own pietistic manipulations. You must assume the guilt and blame of those things. But if you haven't done anything wrong, then be like Job. Job refused to confess sins he had not committed. Right? Don't assume blame or guilt for things you have not done. But whether you've done it or not, you are responsible. Whether you've done it or not, you stand before the Lord. And you have, a, you have a complete and finished sacrifice in the Lord Jesus Christ that you can plead as you assume responsibility. The sacrifice is sufficient. So have your prayer that accompanies the sacrifice be what Job's was. And when you learn this, you learn federal thinking. You learn how your household is a unit before God. Then he is going to begin to bless that.
Ask God to bless your prayer because you're praying biblically and you can know that you are praying biblically. Let's pray together. Almighty God and Father, hear us when we pray to you in Jesus' name. We've heard your word spoken, and we ask you now to bless both the preaching and the hearing of it for Jesus' sake. Keep us far back, we pray, from that folly which hears the word but does not perform it. Keep us from being dull of hearing, and keep us from being far too clever, reinterpreting everything to fit with our own theological notions. We ask you to grant to us a spirit of submission which hears the word spoken and aches to apply it and is impatient to obey. We ask for this spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was a message from our audio collection titled The Covenant Household. If you'd like to hear the rest of the talks, you can purchase them at canonpress.com.